0: the cherubim part 2 both elijah and elisha were called the chariot of israel and the horsemen thereof because it was known and understood that yahweh was working through his prophets the foundation for this expression is laid by david when he is instructing solomon about building the temple in first chronicles chapter 28 verse 18 david calls the cherubim the chariot of the cherubim The reference to the chariot of Israel emphasises Israel as a vehicle of militancy. The phrase, the horseman thereof, better rendered its horseman, is referring to those who control the horses in the chariot. In other words, those who drive the chariot. To understand this language, we have to cast our minds back to the days of Samuel, when the school of the prophets was established due to the failure of the priesthood under Eli and his sons, to foster spiritual health within the nation. It was this prophetic group that Elijah and Elisha developed to become the horsemen who would drive the faithful remnant to maintain faith in Israel. When each of these two prophets were called the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof, we see the cherubim at work in the nation with a focus on the prophet as the medium by which God's spirit was at work in these men. What was understood by Elisha and King Joash was that the power and well-being of Israel was all wrapped up in having the right man directing Israel. If they were thoughtful, they would realise that a particular man had been prophetically promised, in Genesis 12 7. Between the times of Elisha and Ezekiel, the seraphim of Isaiah are introduced. Though cherubim and seraphim are each a manifestation of divine glory – There are differences in the portrayal of the glory unveiled. Where we have a cherubic chariot, the emphasis is on the divine control exercised through an agent. With the seraphim, the emphasis is on the field of operation under divine control. To understand the connection between the seraphim and the cherubim of Ezekiel, we have to appreciate the way in which sin needs to be defeated. In Genesis 3 verse 24, the cherubim were introduced to challenge sin and preserve the way. In Isaiah chapter 6, the seraphim were introduced to reflect the future holiness and glory of God across the world, to punish Judah for their sins, and also to cleanse the righteous from their iniquity. The word seraphim means burning ones, and the prophet's mind would immediately understand God's burning anger at the nation's sin, and this in turn evoked a recognition that he and the people were deserving of God's judgment. But this recognition is followed by an altogether different aspect to their burning judgments. When Isaiah confessed his sins, the seraphim were immediately dispatched to consume his sin. Following this confession and forgiveness, Yahweh says, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Having been purged of sin by the coals of the altar, Isaiah answers, Here am I, send me. Having received this commission, the prophet then delivers to the people extensive details of the Messiah and his work, particularly the opening up of the way. Ezekiel had already been carried in captivity to Babylon as one of the good figs, but Judah and her king are still at Jerusalem with the temple intact. It is about 16 years since Josiah died and about 29 years since Josiah had the temple cleansed ready for the use when the book of the law was found and a covenant was made with the people. Hence, there would be many in Ezekiel's time who could remember this whole period. They had been warned, given an example to follow and encouraged to reform, but had continued to go their own way. The good figs had been taken to Babylon to undergo correction, whilst Jeremiah remained in the land, attempting to work with the last feeble remnant. The Caribic work with the nation in the land was about to cease, God could no longer dwell there when all that he stood for was rejected. These circumstances provide the background for God's message through Ezekiel. Judah's rejection of Yahweh necessitates Yahweh's removal of his presence from his people. It was time to provide Ezekiel with a vision of the cherubim, departing from the temple and the land to illustrate God's rejection of the nation. It is interesting and fitting that with the Babylonian captivity... The cherubim and mercy seat, together with the ark, disappear from the pages of Scripture and remain absent from Judah and Israel to this day. Significantly, the same prophet was advised that a future temple will be built and the cherubic glory will one day return. In Ezekiel chapter 1, the prophet sees a strong wind coming out of the north, accompanied by a great cloud, seething with flames of a fire, Around it, brightness, and in it, brilliant shining. Clouds represent God's presence in a multitude, and the wind signifies the speed and force of an army. The wind coming out of the north is that upon which God's anger is riding to judgment, and this wind is coming from Babylon. The description of the cherubim in the first eleven chapters of Ezekiel is the most extensive description given in Scripture, and is intended to portray the removing of the glory of God from Solomon's temple in Jerusalem. Judah had abandoned Yahweh, and so Yahweh will abandon Judah. In chapter 43, the prophet sees the return of the cherubim at the time of our Lord's return from heaven. Each cherub was basically a man with four faces and four wings, possessing hands and calf's hooves. Between each cherub and the next stood a wheel, and a wheel within that wheel. In the space above was a throne. We see in verses 4 and 18 of chapter 10 that the glory of Yahweh moves first, and then the cherubim follow. It is the glory of God that has decided that it is time to part from Judah. God can no longer work nationally with that generation. Thus the glory directs the cherubim to depart. The hooves of the cherubim express the action of treading down in judgment. The coals of fire that come from the hand of the cherub are scattered upon Jerusalem, further emphasising God's wrath in judgment at Judah's wickedness. All the foundations of the cherubic purpose have now been laid. First, its fundamental objective is expressed, to make sure God's purpose is fulfilled and his glory exalted. Next, it is seen working through faithful men and women, moulding and shaping God's people. Then it works in a nation to produce a divine kingdom, ever revealing God's care, guidance and protection in the process. Furthermore, God would work through layers of agents manifesting his control, thus foreshadowing the appearance of God's Son, who would rule over all as the fullness of God's glory on earth forever. The four faces of the cherubim only appear in Ezekiel's vision. All the other descriptions give no indication of having anything other than a normal face. This means that the faces are peculiarly appropriate, to the departing and returning of the glory to Israel. As the face represents the presence of the individual, as well as their reactions, it is a symbol of one's personality, who and what they are about. Let us consider the faces. The man. The man was made in the image of God with the objective that he would, by his own choice, manifest the thinking and character of God. This purpose was shown to us in its perfection in Christ. Remember Christ's answer to Philip when he asked, Show us the Father. Have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me? Christ says in John 14. Christ is saying to Philip, You must know how I think and how I act in all circumstances. You are seeing the character of God in operation. Man was ultimately made to be like this. The Ox In the ox we have the best example of service. A bull is aggressive and possessive of the herd, but an ox is the perfect servant. An ox will gently take the load and patiently bear it. The lion. Now comes the other side of the picture. Here we have the king of beasts, the one who declares his supreme authority and is respected and feared. This is the symbol of dominion and rulership. The eagle. Finally, the eagle brings to the fore the aspect that makes it the master of the sky. The vision of the eagle is unequalled. From tremendous heights it can see small prey. Also, it is the only creature that can look directly into the sun and see any prey that is in front of the sun. There is no escaping its vision. It has full knowledge of all that is going on. The first two faces, man and ox, both indicate a process that comes to fullness of quality, manifestation and service. The second two speak of a state, dominion and supremacy. God departed from the nation because there was no acceptable service from his people. Therefore, they forfeited their national dominion and supremacy. When their king brings the glory back, the nation will resume acceptable service and enjoy dominion and supremacy once more. Ezekiel's return of the glory is picked up in Revelation chapter 4 in the vision surrounding the four beasts or in Greek, the living creatures. Though they link to Ezekiel's cherubim, they are in fact very different. There are only three attributes which are similar. Eyes, wings, and faces. But even then, there are differences. They have six wings instead of four. Their faces are four in total instead of four each. Also, one face is different. The ox has been replaced by a calf. The ox was a work animal, whereas the calf was a young bull used for sacrifice. When Paul speaks, he uses this word for calf in Hebrews 9 and he is speaking about the Day of Atonement. This association of the word was extant at the time John wrote, so it is likely that the work of atonement in Christ is the idea implied by the face of the calf. The picture in Revelation 4 is really one of the kingdom state of the redeemed. The four living ones appear as a separate symbol to the 24 elders. Not that they are different groups of the redeemed, but rather they represent different aspects of their work. The four living ones will continue to keep the way open and bring the glory back to the land. The twenty four elders, on the other hand, represent mature and righteous leadership. The cherubim are introduced to us with a flaming sword, indicating that they represent warfare, but not just any warfare. It is a warfare upon which everything depends. The battle to the death between the righteousness of God and the power of sin. The climax of the battle occurred when God raised up his Son to defeat sin once and for all. This victory through the offering of Christ is prefigured in the mercy seat of the ark in the tabernacle. It is the two cherubim being all one with the mercy seat that foreshadows the oneness we have in him, in that sacrifice and in that future glory. The two standing cherubim in the temple speak of the protection, rulership and supreme judgment in the kingdom of peace under the king of peace. The vision of the four living ones in the apocalypse acts as a finale to the drama. Sin totally destroyed and the righteousness and glory of God manifesting itself to all and in all.